السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما رسائد الشريف اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Whilst we continue to discuss this very important topic which has been ongoing now for a number of weeks uh, it is imperative that we continue to remind ourselves that this problem hasn't disappeared just because we've listened to a few talks just because we have understood that there is an issue just because we have started learning about a few other black people uh, within the Muslim or Islamic tradition doesn't mean that the deep-rooted racism that we find within our communities within ourselves has disappeared far from it so this is something we have to keep reminding ourselves of what's in the book what's in the literature is what should have been in our lives the reality is we are still far from it we cannot just say that our tradition has dealt with it here there's another example now i know that it's not only sayyidina bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu there are other sahaba as well that's not sufficient and it, I, I think it's very important that we keep reminding ourselves of this particular point so that we don't become sidetracked and we can aim and target our efforts towards what needs to be treated towards that which needs to be changed i use the word change because that is what we need it's not just about listening to a few stories uh signing a petition or supporting a type of movement it's much more than that and change comes from within oneself and the main thing that we will need is a huge mind shift a huge mind shift a change a transformation which was done amongst the sahaba radiallahu anhum this idea of somebody of dark skin is inferior is of less value is not important is scary or is someone who shouldn't be treated equally as everybody else or doesn't deserve to be a leader or someone significant this is something that came from jahiliyyah this is an ignorant custom this is done by people who are far from understanding islam away from the people of quran the people of the hadith the people of the sunnah do not have this kind of mentality and this kind of thinking therefore this mentality and thinking was present and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam worked very very hard to remove this from the minds of sahaba radiallahu anhum and he sallallahu alayhi wasallam there was character development there was nurturing there was a mind shift there was a change and a transformation that took place under the guidance and the nurturing of rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the result of it was that sahaba radiallahu anhum who underwent this process were then able to challenge their own people when anyone amongst their own people who hadn't undergone as much tarbiyah and this character development in this particular area that these early sahaba experienced with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam we find that these sahaba who had undergone this mind shift and this uh, nurturing under the guidance of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam they were able to challenge racism and speak up against it when it came from their own people and also they were able to discuss it and speak out against it when it was coming from those who are foreign to them and this is where we see how that sometimes racism comes from within our own families within our own cultures within our own communities within our own circles our institutes our own organizations and sometimes is outside our community 
it's foreign it's beyond our circle it's beyond of those who associate with sahaba radiallahu anhum they were very beautifully able to articulate and convey when for example if we just study when ambassadors went representing islam to the rulers and the kings of foreign nations and when they presented islam they didn't have hours and hours they had a few moments and they had to round up and summarize their message of islam in a few words and when we study those examples we find that these sahaba anhum definitely underwent a, an amazing character development process in which they articulated islam in the most beautiful way and one of the areas this is we find how that they must have been through some sort of mind shift for, for them when presenting islam one of the things they presented that islam doesn't discriminate uh, when it comes to skin color for example and this is one of the examples that we find um, and even from within so later on we find at the time of uh, Fathu Makkah for example now Fathu Makkah is happening later on there are many Sahaba who accepted Islam many many years before that and they underwent a special tarbiyah and character development staying in the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam then at the time of the conquest of Makkah, there were many of those who had just recently entered Islam. And we find the abusive racist words which were hurled towards Sayyidina Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu when he climbed on top of the Kaaba. Many things were said and we find that these were challenged by these people now who had undergone this tarbiyah. Uh, and we find the incident, for example, of Sayyiduna Abu Dhar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, great Sahabi, great companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. However, when he, after accepting Islam, he went away for some time. When he came back at the time of Hijrah, that is when we find the altercation between him and Sayyiduna Bilad radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And when he said to him something which was very normal in the days of Jahiliyyah, Ya Ibn Sauda, you son of a black woman. And Sayyidina Bilal who didn't like what was said because this is something that was challenged. And then Sahaba were able to stand up against this even when it was coming from someone within their own. Those who were significant, they were great, but they didn't let it go unchecked. And the Prophet also didn't think though this is a great person, I should ignore it. No, when it was time to speak up, speak up against it, it wasn't just, yes, it's in our tradition, we shouldn't be doing these things. But when it happens from within, we remain silent. So today, we are going to look at how people that underwent this mind shift and this transformation. The reason I'm discussing this is, for many weeks now, we've been discussing this topic. And obviously, it's not, this is not just about discussion. Many people are discussing it. People, you can discuss any topic for that sake. And you can have discussion upon discussion. You can have, uh, uh, you can have protests. You can have uh, petitions being signed. You can have a whole movement on it. And we can talk about it and discuss it and dissect it and go into the stories and have interviews and all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to what are we going to do to make that change? This is... And, we, and until we don't realize that the problem is within us, it's very real, it's deep-rooted, and it's not just about saying that, oh, I'm going to learn a little more about this issue. Learning about something doesn't change something that's within you. We need to have a mind shift. We need to work on it. And we see Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they went through this transformation, and there was a mind shift which led them then that when they were faced with it, not just themselves, when others were faced with it, they were able to stand up against racism, even when it came from people of uh, significant standing, people who were considered as rulers, as kings, as governors, and people who were considered to be uh, people that you don't normally speak up against. But when it came to speaking about this in against this injustice in the name of racism, there was they didn't leave any stone unturned why because they underwent this mind shift and this is what you and i need today 
Let's start our journey first of all by speaking about a great woman. You know they say ladies first. So let, let's speak about a great woman, a great Sahabiyah, a great companion of the Prophet the great female companion. This is none other than this amazing woman in the history of Islam. Her name is Umm Haram bint Milhan. Umm Haram bint Milhan radiallahu ta'ala anha, she was the aunt of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the sister of Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha, and one of the first women uh, of, of Medina Munawwara to accept Islam. Very, very close relationship with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Some historians have even established a milk relationship with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Nevertheless, their relationship was extremely close. Umm Haram bint Milhan had a very close relationship with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. On one occasion, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, whilst visiting the house of Umm Haram bint Milhan, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he fell asleep in the house of Umm Haram bint Milhan. When he woke up, he woke up smiling. There was a smile on the blessed countenance of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Umm Haram, she asked, Ya Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, may Allah always keep you smiling. What is it that causes you to smile? O Messenger of Allah, may Allah always keep you smiling. What is it that causes you to smile? And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, Umm Haram, just now whilst I was sleeping, I saw a dream. And I saw my ummah, my people in the dream. And they were traveling by sea. And remember, Sahaba had never traveled by sea up until this moment. They were people of the desert. So my, I saw my ummah, they were traveling by the sea. Why? Where were they going? They were going to spread Islam. And they were actually traveling by the sea. And the Prophet ﷺ was amazed by this. And he even gave a beautiful description, Muluk al-Asir. The Prophet ﷺ gave a beautiful description. He says, they looked like kings on thrones. As they were traveling on these ships in the oceans, going to spread the word of Allah and the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the beautiful teachings of Islam throughout the world. It looks like kings on thrones. And immediately, look at the sincerity the honesty, the integrity of this woman, Umm Haram bint Milhan radiallahu ta'ala anha, immediately she says, Ya Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, please pray to Allah that I am also from amongst them. Not even for a moment did she think, how will I do it? How will I go? Can I go? I am a woman. You know, is it going to be possible going on? No, she didn't think of any of them. She was very optimistic, very positive, and immediately she says, Ya Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, please make dua that I am also from amongst these people as well. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam immediately recognizing and acknowledging her sincerity and this acceptance came from above. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognized the sincerity of this woman upon the lips of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, you will be from amongst them. O Umm Haram, you will be from amongst them. Fast forward many years later, this amazing Sahabiyah, female companion of the Prophet ﷺ, she later on in her life, she traveled with her husband and other Sahaba radiallahu anhum, and they traveled on sea. They went on a ship and they traveled all the way to Cyprus. This woman, this was the acceptance of the dua of the Prophet and the acknowledgement of the sincerity of this woman when Sahaba traveled by ships to Cyprus to spread Islam. This woman was also from amongst them. She accompanied her husband and the rest of the Sahaba as she came off the ship. She tripped and she fell and that fall was fatal and led to her demise radiallahu ta'ala anha she was the first from amongst the muslims to give her life in the land of cyprus and until today until today her tomb is recognized and marked 
and people know her as the pious woman who passed away in Cyprus. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala become pleased with her. This was in the 27th year after Hijrah when this took place. Her sincerity was acknowledged by Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now the reason I mentioned this amazing woman is to understand who was her husband who actually brought Islam to her who became the cause of her becoming a Muslimah and such a great companion of Rasulullah Her husband was none other than the great Sahabi this amazing companion Ubada ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhum now before we go into speaking about this great Sahabi Ubadat ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhum another thing I want to highlight is we have another problem which we find is becoming very very common as we've started discussing this topic is that when we speak about the likes of Sayyiduna Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhum we, um, we exercise him uh, to the extent where we make him out as if he was very unusual he was one of a kind he stood out you know even in for example the movies like the message which i'm sure most of you have watched and many people have come closer to understanding islam and whatever anybody is good we acknowledge the good however even in such uh, portrayals of islam and the early muslims we find that you, you see everyone is sort of white skinned and you've got this one person who's black skinned and this is the image that distorted image that many a times we have in our minds and this is how we portray and when we speak about Bilal it's as if we're pitying him and it's as if we're putting across this narrative and this story distorted version that he was the only person like that and he was the only person who stood out whereas that's not true there were others who were black there were others who were just last week we had a, a, a whole uh, session dedicated to a woman and the only woman and the only person who accompanied the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam from the second he was born until his departure from this world and even after and that was none other than umm ayman an african woman a black woman who was favored by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be at the side of rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam uh, throughout his entire life and there were others usama ibn zayd radiallahu ta'ala anhu the youngest and the first general appointed by the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam to lead the army of sahaba radiallahu anhum and there were many others so it's not as if you know yes the story of sayyidina bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu is very important in islamic history and we acknowledge it and it's important that we recognize the status of bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu that's there in its place but to look at it from an angle where we make him as an unusual kind of figure and we say like he was the only person and all eyes were raised up towards him that's not true there were other companions there were other individuals in the company of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who were dark-skinned and even prior to islam and this might be news for most of us or all of us um, many historians have mentioned that in the quran when allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about one of the kings who ruled the entire world and quran gives him a name a, 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 you know a, a position in the quran regarding dhul qarnain they say he was an african black king who ruled the entire world and there are many others we can go into time doesn't allow us to go into each and every one but we are we're speaking on a specific angle today so this is dhul qarnain now what amazes me is when we speak about these issues is just think about the migrations uh, that were undertaken by the early muslims the two migrations before they migrated to medina munawwara where did muslims migrate to i mean we all know this everybody knows this but this is allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made this happen and think about the people who went there what would be their mind when they're going to a country to a people they're going to a black country they went to africa so the early muslims two groups of them to seek refuge protection why did they go there because they knew and they heard that they were really nice people they were so welcoming and kind 
warm-hearted. The king was known to be very warm-hearted. And he was. And this is an early powerful message that this is Islam. Where is that within us? Why, has, why have we lost this? And you can imagine those Sahaba who went and went to Africa. They sought refuge in there. They lived amongst these people. They were cared for, given protection, given rights by these African people, by this African king in Habasha. We call Ethiopia today, but it was much larger than that. Um, so moving on, this is, I think, is something significant. This tells us something. Uh, now, anyway, let's move on. So Ubada ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he was the husband of Umm Haram, the woman I just spoke about who passed away in Cyprus and her grave is known well today as well as a great companion and sahabiya of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam who passed away in Cyprus and I've just told you the story. Now, this great sahabi, Ubada ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he served as a great companion of the Prophet from his early days, from the moment he accepted Islam. And he was from the early people who accepted Islam uh, in Bay'atul Aqabatil Ula. Uh, and uh, he was a leader and he was appointed as a Jab. He was one of the scribes of Wahi. He was a warrior. He held many roles in the life of the Prophet and also in the eras of the Khulafa al-Rashidin as well. So one of the first from the Ansar in Bay'atul Aqabatil Ula, those who are familiar with the Seerah will know regarding the early pledges where the Prophet was still in Makkatul Mukarrama, and you had this group of Muslims, sorry, this group of people who had not yet accepted Islam who came from then it was called Yathrib today we call Medina Munawwara and they came and they heard the message of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and they accepted Islam and we call this the Bay'atul Aqabatil Ula the first pledge of allegiance and uh, Ubada ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu was from amongst these first people of the Ansar and he came the following year as well when they brought more people from their families and the people that they knew who would be interested in accepting Islam on the hands of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Another amazing thing about this particular companion that he was there in every battle. In every campaign, he went out and took part and accompanied Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And, uh, you know, the list goes on. He was from Kuttabul Wahi. You know, to be from Kuttabul Wahi, you have to be extremely trusted. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was sending Wahi, Quran, upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam received that Quran. And then the Prophet spoke that Quran, recited that Quran. There were a handful of people who were at hand that when the Prophet is receiving wahi, and then the Prophet would then later on speak that Quran, recite that Quran. There were certain people who were privileged to be amongst Kuttabul Wahi, who would then write, you know, the Quran me and you read today. Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu anhu from was, was one of those who was privileged to be one of those who was from the scribes of Wahi, who was trusted by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He was later on appointed by Sayyiduna Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu as the first Qadi in Islam, the first judge of Palestine. And later on in his life, he actually passed away in a place called Ramla in Palestine as well. And today, um, he, and, and then later on, he was transferred and today he is buried adjacent to Masjid Al-Aqsa. So we, those who've been to Masjid Al-Aqsa, everybody who goes to Masjid Al-Aqsa visits the grave of Ubadat ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu because his grave and he is buried right next to Masjid Al-Aqsa. The wall of Masjid Al-Aqsa and we have immediately, we have the Muslim cemetery and the most significant we find from amongst those buried there are Sayyiduna Ubadat ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu who is buried in Palestine. One thing special about Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu was he had a very imposing presence. Like when he was there, he had a presence. And he was described 
as being very black. So you get a person who's dark, you get someone who's dark-skinned, or you will call them black. But the description regarding him, he was very black. He wasn't just tall. His description is he was very tall. So you've got people who are tall. He was very tall. Uh, in some narrations I've, I've, I've seen in historically mentioned that he was about two meters tall. So he was very tall. He wasn't just good looking. The features mentioned, it says he was very handsome. So his features were very captivating. And he had very defined features. And he wasn't just strong. He was very strong. They say regarding his forearms that if a person was to try and hold his forearms with two hands, you couldn't. That's the size of his muscles. So he was very black, very tall, very handsome, very captivating, very strong. And he was very eloquent. An incredible command on speech. When he spoke, his words, his eloquence was captivating and it was amazing. He was a Badri Sahabi, remember? He was a leader. He was a ruler. Many, many roles he, uh, he was appointed and given during his lifetime. One by the Prophet ﷺ and later on by the Khulafa al-Rashidin as well, uh, Sayyiduna Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhuma. He was also from the people or the person who led the first delegation to Egypt. So as you know, in history, there were many, many uh, uh, expeditions and delegations and the, the armies of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they went and many of these places then came under the rule of Islam. So whilst all this was ongoing, it was now time to head towards Egypt. And Egypt was, as you know, conquered under the great Sahabi Amr ibn al-As radiallahu ta'ala anhum. So the delegation under Amr ibn al-As radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the leader of this delegation, appointed by Amr ibn al-As radiallahu anhu, was none other than Ubadah ibn al-Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So Muslims arrived in Egypt in the year 641 after uh, 641. And when the Muslims arrived in Egypt, um, what would happen is they had their huge army. So there were thousands of people in the army. And at the front of the army, there were 10 men, 10 selected elite people. These were 10 selected people. And they would serve as the delegation. So the whole army wouldn't arrive at the doors of the king or the doors of the palace of Egypt. They would stay behind and 10 special people were selected from this army to be the delegation that would go and speak to the ruler and the king of Egypt. And at that time, the king and the ruler of Egypt was a man by the name of Al-Muqawqis. So Al-Muqawqis is the Egyptian king. He was sent a message regarding this delegation that this delegation of muslims of 10 people have arrived to speak to you on behalf of the army of thousands which they have left behind and they are requesting to see you to speak to you and they're representing this large army of the muslims and muqawqis he leaves his palace and he comes out to speak and to hear and to meet this delegation of 10 people when he arrives, he finds that from there are 10 of these, the delegation consists of 10 people. So he sees these 10 people. Now, amongst these 10 people, what happens is, Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu has been appointed as the leader of these 10. So these 10 were already special. And then from amongst these 10, their leader was Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now, when Muqawqis, the king of Egypt, he walks out to meet these people, Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he walks forward from the delegation to start conversing and speaking and discussing and having a dialogue with Al-Muqawqis. Now remember, Muqawqis, this was like a Roman institution. They were not used to this. So even before Ubadah ibn Samit even said anything, when 
he walked forward. Muqawqis was shocked and he was left speechless. Felt like, whoa, they'd never seen anything like this before. Why? Why, why was he shocked? What was it that shocked him? Remember this Muqawqis, you will learn and see, extremely racist, very racist. He saw that this delegation of these these 10 people, this delegation, which is representing the huge army, is being led by this black man. Upon seeing him walking forward, Mokokis, he disrespected him in many, many ways. Many ways. When he noticed, oh, right, okay, it's a black man. So he disrespected him in many ways. Firstly, what he did was, he tried to not even acknowledge him. So when, when Ubadah ibn Samit who walks forward, Muqawqis looked around him. He looked beyond him. And he, he tried to sort of catch the eye of somebody else to see, is there anybody else who might come forward, who might want to speak to me? And maybe thinking that, you know, he can't be the leader. Maybe the leader is somebody else. And maybe he's just sent this man forward. This black man has been sent forward by the leader. Let me see who the real leader is. He can't be the leader. He might just have been sent forward. So Muqawqis is looking around and he tries not to sort of have eye contact with him. And do you know the idea of these stories again is not for us to treat this as another story to add to our profile and to add to our list of stories and say oh yes this is another story is now for us to try and internalize the message and try to see do we have this within us as well doesn't it happen you go to the bank for example you're standing in the queue you're standing in that. a lot of times these things are very subtle i might say that i'm not a racist i might not say that i don't have these things within me but our actions speak otherwise. And sometimes these things are extremely subtle. Let's speak about reality, our real life. What, you know, you go to the bank, for example, you've gone to the bank, you're standing in the queue, and it's, now it's your turn. It's your turn to go, to go forward. Counter number six, please. And you look up, and the man or the ladies behind the counter is a black person. This happens, this happens where a person would stop in their tracks, would stop thinking about going and just pretend to um, drop something and oh, um, you, you say to the next person, you can go, it's fine. You can go or otherwise what you do is you try and look beyond and see is the next person before them or after them? Counter number one, counter number three, are they not free yet? Or you might think, oh, this person's finishing. Let me just go over here. So. These Muqawqis isn't doing something. You might think, whoa, that's really bad. Why did Muqawqis do that? Well, aren't we being a little bit of Muqawqis as well at times? And this thing can be very, very subtle at times. And it's important that we in this climate today, especially now the topic is being discussed, it's important that we try and, you know, you might be a racist. Let's not make our children racist. You might see a lot of these memes and a lot of these uh, uh, captions going around that a child is never born racist. And you see little children playing all of different skin colors. It's only when you grow up. But it's what we teach our children as well. And sometimes... Our, our teaching and our message, you might think that I've never taught my child to be a racist, but sometimes it's because it's so inherent and deep-rooted within us. Sometimes that message is a silent message. You don't even realize you're giving off. You might be walking with your child and you're holding your child's hand. So you're walking in the park, for example, and you're holding your child's hand. And then all of a sudden, you've got... A, a group passing by of, of, of black children, for example, and you're walking casually with your child and you don't even realize, but what you've done, you've not said anything. You've not said, oh, don't play with these black children. Maybe your parents may have told you that when you were young, that don't associate yourself with them. You, you're not saying anything like that, but instead what you've done, it's very subtle. You might not even think you're doing it. But because we've been programmed in a certain way, what you've done is as you're walking, 
all you've done is you've tightened your grip on your child's hand. It's become a bit tighter. Well, you didn't do that when you passed by white children. You didn't pass, do that when you passed by the other children of the other color. But it's only when you pass by black children, you've, you've tightened the grip on your child's hand. And you might not think you've done anything, but to your child, that does give a message. It does give a message. You might be sitting in your car waiting in a parking lot and people are coming and going, shopping. You know, you're waiting for your wife. She's gone in and, you know, you, we, we've got the, the other caption of that man waiting outside a shop and he's become a skeleton wait, waiting. Anyhow, so you're waiting in the car or maybe nowadays social distancing, you know, they don't allow too many people to go in. So, so you're waiting in the car. And many people are coming and going into their cars, out of their cars, into the shop, out of the shop. And you're there, you're, you're on your phone. You're going through your messages and whatnot. And all of a sudden, uh, the person who parks up next to you is now a black person. What do you do? You might not say anything to him. You might not even look at him. But very subtly, you press the button. You lock the car. And we might not realize, but these are things true. And these are things that we're doing. Mukawqis, he did it very openly. And he didn't, he's not said anything as of yet. He's going to. He's not said anything as of yet. And just because you don't say anything doesn't mean you're not a racist. We, we need to really, really check ourselves. We need to really, really see that, that we need that mind shift. So, Mukawqis, he sort of looks around to see who, who's the real leader. This guy can't be the leader. Or let me see if I can try and speak to somebody else. See if there's any other uh, colleague or if there's any other person who's going to take me and invite me to the counter. Uh, so what happens now is Mukawqis, he looks around and he didn't say anything. He didn't see anybody looking towards him or no one else seemed like they were the leader. So when he actually realized that he actually doesn't have a choice and he has to deal with this person in front of him, Ubada ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when he got the idea that he is the leader, then he, his racism wasn't contained anymore. It started, he started splitting it out. What he said, Ib'idu anni al aswad, that move this black man away from me, send him away, move him away from me, and somebody else come and speak to me. I, I don't want to speak to this black man. Why has he come forward? Very clear. And I don't even want to speak to him. I won't sp I'm not going to speak to him. I'll speak to somebody else, not him. Now, Ubadah ibn Samit didn't then need to start defending himself. He didn't need to start a hashtag of Black Lives Matter. Obada ibn Samit didn't need to start crying and saying that we are oppressed and we are a people that are going through injustice. Why is it that everywhere we go, people are speaking up against us like this and mistreating us? There wasn't a need to do that. Do you know why? Because the other people that were around him, that were with him, that were not black, but they understood that this is an injustice. This is racism. This is wrong on all levels. And do you know what? We are not going to tolerate it. And it doesn't matter who the person is. You can be a king. You can be a ruler. You can be an auntie or an uncle. You can be a community leader. You could even be someone as significant as a sheikh. It doesn't matter. If you are going to be racist and if you are going to carry out injustice, we are not going to let it unchecked and we are going to speak up against it. And the people that were around Ubada ibn Samit, even before Ubada could say anything, they responded by saying, Inna hadha afdaluna ra'yan wa ilman wa huwa amiruna. They responded by saying, You're calling him inferior. Let it be known, this man in front of us, Ubadah ibn Samit, he is the best man from amongst us. He is the most knowledgeable from amongst us. He has the greatest wisdom from amongst us. And like it or not, he is our leader. 
And This is the mind shift. This is transformation. This is how powerful they were able to deliver the message of Islam. And they said, We Muslims are a people. Black and white are both the same for us. We do not discriminate. Black, white doesn't make a difference to us. Why are we giving him merit? Do you know why? Because he is the most knowledgeable from amongst us. He is the wisest from amongst us. And he has been appointed by our leader as a leader upon us. To us, black and white are both the same. It doesn't make any difference to us whatsoever. This reminds me of, you know, people recognize uh, sicknesses and ailments of the heart and diseases like pride and jealousy and hatred and for example uh, having arrogance and, 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 and desiring fame people understand and I'm talking about religious circles over here they recognize these to be sicknesses of the hearts yet they haven't recognized racism is also a sickness of the heart that needs to be treated you know, it's just like Hazrat Maulana Rashid Ahmad Gangohi Rahmatullahi when he's addressing somebody and saying that, you know, a spiritual state that you, when, what to really tells you reach to a spiritual state is when he says when Madih and Dham both become equal, meaning a person that criticizes you and a person that praises you. You know, someone can praise you and you could in, become inflated and then someone can criticize you and that could deflate you. And Hadat Maulana Rashid Ahmad Gangohi Rahmatullahi would say that, you know, you've reached a spiritual state where a critic or a person praising you, their words really are both the same. They don't have an impact on you. It doesn't inflate you or deflate you. You know that them praising you doesn't make a difference to who you really are. And them, someone criticizing you doesn't really make a difference to the sins that you're committing or not committing. You are who you are and you know your worth in the sight of Allah or your lack of worth. At the end of the day, just by somebody praising you or criticizing, but we, we're so affected by these things. So just like these are spiritual maladies that need uh, to be uh, treated uh, and that need remedies similarly racism is also a spiritual disease of the heart that needs treating and you can see can you see those who underwent this transformation this discipline this nurturing they're not going to say how can my son get married to a, a, a bengali girl when we are pakistani or how can my daughter get married to a gujarati when we are, are from a bengali family or how can we be Indians and give our daughter away to somebody who is white, for example? Yes, he might be a reaver, but he's a white and we're not going to accept it. We wouldn't come out with these things. Yes, some people have certain reasons where they might see a person not fit, not because of skin color or because of race, but because of something else. They might have found out that maybe they are involved in, in crime, for example. Maybe they are involved in things which, could, which are not good. Maybe they, are, they, 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 they might be harmful, for example, for the son or the daughter that's going into that particular relationship. That's a different we, we we look at that in all marriages and we look at and the main thing that you look at is deen so if you're finding someone who doesn't have deen in them that's understandable because you're you're, you're putting forward a common criteria however when a person you find somebody who has the deen who has the deen who has a good job who is of a good background who has a social standing and then you're only discriminating and you're disagreeing and you're willing. Parents are going as far to disown their children that if you go ahead and want to get married to so-and-so, if you mention that person's name once more, I'm going to disown you. You're not my child anymore. Because the thing what you need to remember is you parents, my respected parents that are out there, fathers and mothers who are out there, and you are concerned in this regard. Remember what you need to understand uh, fathers and mothers who are listening is at the end of the day, it's not you who's going to get, be in this marriage. It's not you who's getting married. It's that child. It's the boy. It's the girl. It's their life. Why are you imposing your ideas, your racism, your discrimination and your corrupt mentality 
on your children. Yes, I understand and I'm with you. If it's done on a religious reason, where you're finding that there's lack of religiosity or something else to that effect, where you're fearing that your son or your daughter, for example, might end up having injustice done towards them. However, if it's solely done on the base of race, you've got nothing else to bring to the table. You have a reason and I've been involved in certain of these discussions. And you say, okay, bring to the table. You bring me anything else to the table besides this. And many families will tell you that, you know, we don't have any issues. You are, this, this family is more practicing than we are. Your job is better than any of jobs that we have in our families. You are from such a good background. You're deemed our religious people. But you know what? We, we can't do it. Why? Because you're not from the same caste or you are different. Like, what's the difference? The country, like, just... Like the, the India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, for example, used to be all one country at once. Okay, these are just mere borders. They're lines. Yes, we have certain cultural differences and those are things that you work on. But if that's the only thing, if that's the only... And this is generally, that's what happens. There is nothing else they can bring because the, the, the boy or the girl that's being presented is mashallah brilliant and they're from a good background they've got good education everything's fine everything's perfect they're very good looking and there's no issues whatsoever the only issue they bring on the table is of race so this is something we need to understand if that's being found within us that means there's a problem within us it's deep-rooted and it needs to be removed sahaba radiallahu anhum they underwent like they underwent a tarbiyah for all of the other issues that we find within us and that they were found within them. This is something also that was removed. Therefore, in the presence of the racist king, they stood up and they said, You know what? We are a people, we are Muslims. And according to us, our religion and our Prophet and our Quran, Black and white doesn't make a difference. There's no difference whatsoever. That's not what we base anything on. We base things on merit, on taqwa. And we find that this man, Ubadah ibn Samit, he's the most knowledgeable, the most wise. He is our leader. Now, when Muqawqis heard this, Muqawqis wasn't really used to being spoken to. And remember, he's a king. He wasn't really used to being spoken to in such straightforward words. So he speaks to the delegation again. Remember, he's speaking over Ubadah. So Ubadah ibn Samit again, he doesn't even acknowledge the presence of Ubadah ibn Samit. He speaks over Ubadah ibn Samit again. Again, he speaks to the delegation and he said, again, he's being extremely racist. And he says, how could you accept this black man to be the best amongst you whereas he should have been the least person amongst you he should have been the lowest of the lowest how can you make this black person the best i mean he's saying it right he's there and he's acting as if he's not and the sahaba radiallahu anhum they didn't stay silent whilst injustice was being carried out they didn't remain and many a times this happens even within our own communities, when it, again, I bring up marriage because that is probably one of the common, most common things that occur and, uh, 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 and where we encounter this. And we find that sometimes the dad's okay with it, but the mom's not. The mom's okay with it, but the dad's not. Or the mom and dad's okay with it, but the grandparents are okay with it. And sometimes the mom's okay, the dad's okay, even the grandparents have come round as well, it's okay. Uh, 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 and funnily enough, you know, the, this is our, oh, oh, at the end of the day, it's okay, Musalman hai, Musalman hai, chalo, koi baat nahi. You know, why would, why would you reduce someone to just by saying, oh, it's, it's, he's a Muslim, so it's okay. What about, the, there are other things, yes, being a Muslim is great, but the way it's said is okay. So the mom's okay, the dad's okay, granddad's okay, grandma's okay, sometimes it's one of the aunties, one of the uncles. And they say things like, right, if you get your son married to that family, okay, just because they are from another ethnicity, or sometimes even within, 
the same ethnicity, the same background because they say they're from a lower caste, like we are farmers and they are fishermen or something, or we are this and they are that, or we are Raja and they are, they are this, or we are Patels and they are... Well, it doesn't matter what it is, but you get the gist of it. They, you know, family members are saying, one brother is saying, the uncle is saying to the dad, that, you know what, if you go ahead with this marriage, I'm never going to step in your home again. I mean, like, what, how does it impact you? It's not even your own child. Even if it was your child, it's not going to impact you because it's not your life, it's your children. And this is your nephew or your niece and you're spoiling it for them. And so many, so many marriages don't go ahead because of this. Or many of these young people continue committing zina. Or if they weren't committing zina, then they do because they, they feel they've found the right person. And there's no, there's no, if, if you were to bring, if you bought, for example, that, okay, we're not happy because of, X, Y, and Z, and they are valid according to Sharia. And you're bringing these things and they're valid, that's fine. But if it's only race you can bring to the table, that's not valid. That's not valid. And people will not accept that. And you're going to cause more harm uh, 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 than you think and you realize. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the understanding and open our minds and help us to assist our young in, in moving forward in life. Uh, it's you can't we can't impose back in the days when 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 you probably got married it was different your parents might have chosen someone for you and you might not even have seen who your wife was and you went you went along with it and maybe your wife was okay with that because that was the way people were made to think uh, whereas Islam doesn't tell you that Islam gives a choice to the boy Islam gives a choice to the girl and they've got their own choice to make and if they don't want to accept a proposal that you're bringing for whatever reason that's they're within their rights to do that you can't disown them and say you have to get married to so-and-so within the family what are they going to say what are they going to say we've got a girl in the family and you found somebody from outside that's that's not Islam that isn't Islam you can carry on praying you can carry on going for Hajj every year you can give millions in your charity and you can be very well known in society and people respect you but within the home, if this is going to be your attitude, that means there's a huge spiritual illness. And this is also recognized to be a huge problem that needs to be worked on. And this is also a huge area of Islam that we need to recognize. So let's move on. And the Sahaba, whom they said to Muqawqis, they said, so what if he's black? So what if he's black? He is, despite his blackness, he is still the best amongst us. He is the most noble amongst us. And do you know what, Muqawqis? We do not consider blackness as something bad in our eyes. We Muslims do not consider blackness as a bad thing. It's not an issue. In our religion, we do not discriminate against skin color, Muqawqis. This is the message the Sahaba very strongly gave to a racist king, they stood up against it. After all that rudeness and failing to acknowledge Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu anhum and right in front of his face being extremely, extremely disrespectful, he realized he doesn't have a choice but to deal with Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu anhum. So this, he doesn't stop. You know, when it's deep-rooted, when, when it comes out, it comes out really bad. And it came out. And what did he start saying? He said, right. He addresses Ubadah ibn Samit and he says, Come forward, O black man, and speak gently to me. Because your blackness scares me. And if you speak harshly to me, then your blackness and your voice is going to scare me even more. So he insults him even further. A very extremely racist insult he gives to him. Ubaidah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu comes forward and he exploits this opportunity. And he said he was very smart. Ubaidah ibn Samit, amazing. Very, very smart sahabi radiallahu anhu. He says to him, O Muqawqis, I have heard what you've said. I've been listening, you know, I, you know, don't think that I didn't hear what you've been saying about me. I've heard what you've said, Muqawqis. 
And if you're scared of me, then know that I've left behind me an army of thousands. In that army of thousands of people, let me tell you, there are 1,000 people from that army who are more blacker than me as well. And when they come here, they'll scare you more than I'm scaring you. He, he played along with it. He played along with it. With, with these kind of people, this is how you deal with them. And Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu then says, that, do you know me? You're saying you're scared of me? If, if 100 men of my enemy were to come and fight me, he says, I wouldn't be scared. If I was alone and 100 men of my enemy were to come and fight me, he says, I wouldn't be alone. You know, sometimes, sometimes when people face injustice, racism, injustice for years upon years, and it becomes systematic, it just becomes a, a, a way people deal with, it becomes the way of society for so long, then do you know the people that are mistreated, they start responding in a certain way as well. And you know, I'm not here to, uh, I'm not here to, to sort of approve or to sort of agree with some of the things that people do. Uh, but I think many, what, these, these injustice drives them towards a certain behavior. And then many of us then say, yeah, yeah, but they are like that. They do things like that. That's why, well, don't look at that. At the end of the day, you need to think, how did it become like that? It's your racism and your injustice that has led to communities upon communities to become disadvantaged. To, uh, don't, don't, we don't say, oh, there's a certain community of people. They are, they're, they're criminals anyway. They're all, they, they, yeah, you look at the crime rate. It's always them. No. Study and understand. Why has that happened? Why has that happened? Through the systematic racism, certain communities were disadvantaged. They were put in this position where they weren't given opportunities. They were deprived. They didn't have the rights that all other people had. And that led to them then becoming in this uh, pitiful condition where that led them towards lashing out. Well, led them towards doing the things that many a times they do. And of course, we disapprove of any kind of wrong. But let's not look at it as uh, it's not as simple as what you can see out there. There's more to it. So, Muqawqis addressed him, Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu said, you know what? If a hundred of my enemy were to come in front of me, I wouldn't be scared. And you know, I can say the same about the thousand black people that I've left behind. So each one of us were ready to face a hundred people of your army. And you know what? If they came, I'm sure you'll definitely be, be scared. And then he gave a long speech. You know, he, was, he had an amazing command uh, on his speech, very eloquent. And he gave a long speech. We're not going to go into all of the details. But he just said some simple words by saying, you know, we are a people who do not, we don't fight out of a desire to loot communities or to accumulate wealth. We only come because we want to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, he deters any kind of bribe Muqawqis could put before him and bribing him of wealth or position or anything else. He, he pushes all that out of the way. He said, look, we are a people. We're not about money. We're not about land grabbing. We're not warmongers. We don't want to kill and loot and, and, and rape the women and captivate and make people prison. That's not what we're about. We are here to seek the pleasure of Allah. And that's what we're here for. When Muqawqis heard the powerful speech of Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Muqawqis turned to his own people and he said, Hal have you ever heard a person speak the way this man just spoke? There's already a change in him in the way he addresses him. And he says, have you heard anyone speak just the way this man spoke? I was afraid by the, he says to his people, I was afraid by the way he looks. But I think his speech scares me even more. I was afraid by the way he looks, but I think his speech scares me even more. I can sense there is such eloquence, such power, 
and such integrity in this man that it's not going to be you know sufficient for us to just have uh, a few discussions here and there they mean business they're not here for wealth they're not here for women they're here for a greater purpose and they have faith inside them may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to take inspiration from the lives of these companions and help us to stand up against racism as well just a few points that we learn and we can take away from this amazing incident and this encounter between Ubadah ibn Samit and the delegation and the Egyptian king Muqawqis is that it's not enough for us to cling to one or two stories in the history of Islam and for me and you to say that Islam has dealt with the issue of racism um, so I don't really need to do anything no there needs to be a shift in mindset uh, because we do find this issue deep-rooted within our community the other point is we need to listen very carefully to the experiences that people are having uh, or have had within our community black people for example listen to them let them speak listen to them um, and let them tell you don't assume don't speak on their behalf don't speak them down let them tell you that it's very real and the experiences they've had for you to then acknowledge and understand that the problem is real and it's ongoing and it's us and it's our people so one is from uh, from us let black people speak and let other people speak even within our communities within our own ethnicities whether you are Indian you're Pakistani you're Bengali and even within our own people we have this issue of race let people speak listen to them and they will tell you and what that will do is that will that will then drive you to think what you can do to live up to the true teachings of Islam where you see that Islam never taught discriminating somebody just because of their race that never happened and then you can if we don't allow people to speak if we don't allow ourselves to listen to their experiences and say no nah, it doesn't happen it's not true nobody would do no no they say things like this no parent wishes bad for their children this is what people then you know they emotionally try and drive you and say look no parent bitter bitty no parent wants bad for their children uh, that's true no parent wants, wants bad for their children that doesn't mean that as a parent you're not being racist that doesn't mean that you're not bringing anything else to the table if you can give a reasonable explanation for why you're turning this proposal down where this boy or this girl is very good looking from a good family and has a nice job as well there's nothing there's nothing you can bring besides just saying that uh, you know uh, this person is black or this person is not doesn't speak our language or from a different culture or different background if that's the only thing then you know you're not wishing the best for your child uh, because you can see and many parents are actually when children are saying uh, you know when, when a person's attached to somebody not to say in no way or shape or form am I approving of somebody going and dating uh, but what I'm saying is when a boy and a girl have become attached to each other and you have nothing else besides race and they are the boy or the girl is then saying that look is either him or nobody else and you know that this is now going to lead to a state of depression you know that this is going to become suicidal for somebody you know that you are and despite knowing that being the parent if you're going to then dis disown your child I'm never going to speak to you ever again and you're giving them the silent treatment at the time when they need you the most at the time when they need you the most if you're going to give them the silent treatment at that time just because they're disapproving of getting married to your niece or nephew back home in whichever country you're from uh, this doesn't sit well it's not Islamic it's not from a good Muslim person to do this and then your statement that no parent wishes bad for their child they are just words then they are just words in reality you're destroying somebody's life you're destroying your own child's life by doing this therefore think times are different now it's not like back home it's not like even the UK how it was many years ago things are changing rapidly our children they interact with many people they see people of different backgrounds and cultures they don't have the racist lens that you may have as parents they look at everybody as equal and to them it's fine and at the end of the day it's their life 
and if they are making that choice they need your blessing they need your support and if you yes if you have something valid that's understandable but if you don't then they need your du'as they need your support and they need your help so that they come out of this sin of committing zina and they can make something halal and carry out this marriage in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and move on and become an example for the rest of the world that look yes it can happen we are not people who are discriminatory we are not racist or rather we are very open and practicing Islam as it should and the other thing we understand is Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu he didn't need to speak to defend himself did he speak up no he didn't need to speak up to defend himself so what I was getting at earlier is this within the family sometimes the mom agrees and the dad doesn't or the dad agrees and the mom doesn't but either of them won't speak up they'll speak to their son and the daughter about it a bit don't worry I'm with you your mom's not with you like you know it's it's her you shift the blame or the mom will say look I'm I understand totally I'm not racist I don't have an issue if uh, uh, you know this person comes into our house I don't I'm don't mind at all but it's your dad or some people say look mom and dad's okay with it it's our parents are not okay granddad's not okay with it you know granddad's gonna have a heart attack if you do this and emotionally you sort of try and drive them away but again the boy or the girl, why sometimes we put so much pressure on these young people to go and then you know you, you go and speak to your dad or you go and speak to your auntie you go and but if you're if you're for example okay with it why don't you speak out against it if you're okay with it as being the dad or the mom or the uncle and you think it's fine and there's nothing wrong with it and you, you, you need to speak to your partner. Don't put all the burden on the children. Don't put the burden on somebody who's already burdened. You speak up against it. And you tell them how wrong it is. And how you can see. But you don't want the blame. You don't want that responsibility. And, and, and so this is what happened. Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu wasn't the one who had to defend himself. The delegation spoke up. And they spoke out against racism. And they conveyed practically remember at the moment we're all about theory i'm speaking about it but really realistically practically can we convey that this the true beautiful nature of islam and i end by saying look the solution to this is not going to be empty slogans just having a hashtag on black lives matters uh, we need to accept first of all we have the problem and have an open mind and a hope and heart and accept change change is needed change needs to come from within and we need to start changing from now may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take us on this journey may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us to change from within may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala purify uh, from us from within may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enlighten our minds may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for our youngsters and our youth in particular wa akhiru da'wana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen